This is Jim Leyritz, former New York Yankee, two-time World Series champion, and you are listening to Benjamin Block on Block's Corner. Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here, and welcome to the latest installment of Block's Corner. As you just heard in the intro, my guest this episode is New York Yankees postseason legend Jim Leyritz. And anyone born in the late 1980s or earlier already knows of Jim's indelible contributions that he had on those Yankees teams in the mid and late 90s. But I think after listening to this conversation, you'll have a much deeper appreciation and understanding for him. Also, You won't want to miss what Jim said Garrett Cole's family told him while they were sitting together in a luxury box in Yankee Stadium during the 2019 American League Championship Series, along with stories about past teammates and advice his dad gave him, which he said allowed him to persevere. And of course, it can only be heard here on Block's Corner. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jim. I hope you enjoy. As the personal catcher for Andy Pettit in both your stints with the Yankees, I was just wondering what kind of reaction you had to hearing that he played such a big role and such a pivotal role in persuading Garrett Cole to sign with the Yankees. Well, you know, that's basically one of the things when you become a Yankee, if you can do something after your career to to help them, uh, it's great. And the fact that you know they were able to keep him away from Jeter because <laughs> he's stealing everybody else. Um, that's a good point. And, and have, yeah, and have Andy be part of the, the organization, and and you know that, that's one of the things that I really think that uh, Mr. Steinbrenner really instilled uh, when he was around, and I think uh, hopefully you know, the Suns are carrying that on. Um, but that keeping the former players around, keeping the guys who were part of the championship teams around, I can you know like I said, I remember Old Timers Day with Musco and Hank Bauer and all these guys being in the locker room and talking to them and yeah. them sharing their stories. Uh, to really have former players who were part of these championship teams around to be able to talk to these younger guys, to be able to talk to these free agents um, is, is so huge because, again, you know, people are like, oh, well, you know, you've played in New York before. You should know New York. It's like, no, no one knows New York unless you've lived there. You've seen what it's like, the fans. I tell people all the time, if you come to New York with me, you'll see a completely different way that New York is, you'll see how friendly people are. You'll see how, you know, it's one of the most friendliest cities that I've ever played in. And I think really? Andy, and yeah, I mean, I think Andy, you know, talked to, I remember I actually saw Garrett Cole's wife uh, at the playoffs and she was in the suite with us up at Yankee stadium when Verlander was pitching. Uh, this past Verlander's, year. Yeah. 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 Kate was in there with, with uh, her family and, and Justin's family. And, uh, in, in Garrett Cole's wife. And I, you know, I ended up talking to her and I said, yeah, you know, Hey, listen, I'm from, you know, Cota de Casa, California, which is right next to Newport beach. Okay. And so we started, we started a conversation and I kind of joked with her and said, well, you know, I guess you guys are going to be going back to the West coast is what the, what the rumor is. And she's like, well, <laughs> not really. Wow. And I said, why? Yeah. And then she told me the story of Garrett with that sign. Did she really? At 10 years old being in the stadium and that he is a huge Yankee fan and that, that New York is really their probably number one destination. If, if they can, if the numbers are right. And, uh, I 
obviously the numbers were right. I mean, they, thank God, you know, <laughs> they were very Boris right. Was, <laughs> well, once again, Boris does what he does best. He's, you know, he gets Strasburg to sign first to a big contract, you know, and I think that that contract that Strasburg has, I think all the experts were saying that was probably what Cole was going to get. Yeah, but, that, that was, uh, I was under that impression. And when he got yeah. that figure, my mindset automatically shifted to, well, that's going to give Garrett Cole a lot of leverage because I assume that exactly. he's going to want to top that. So that was a very interesting play by Boris. Yeah, all my all my friends here that are in the business that were you know scouting everything thought that Cole was going to get seven years, 250. And that was that was the talk. And then as soon as Strasburg got to forty five, you're like, okay, here goes the three hundred mark. Because exactly, yeah. I think everybody's mindset just automatically shifted. They're like, all right, here we go. And right, maybe. But I think it's but I think it's great that the Yankees, you know, had reached out to Andy Pettit, and you know, Andy was a, is a guy that you know, you know, again, I was his personal catcher. Uh, you know, very down to earth guy, very not caught up in the whole scene of everything. And I think he probably just told Garrett, you know, this in New York is great. And, and, and the one thing that I had told uh, Garrett's wife was mm-hmm. there was, yeah, I, cause I, you know, cause she didn't know who I was at first. And then she saw me taking pictures in the suites and mm-hmm. everything else. And I said, this is what New York is all about. Even after he's done playing and you may not need the money, obviously, but mm-hmm. To be able to be invited back, to be able to be part of an organization that continually brings back their former players and to be honored, you know, again, and have these team reunions and these things. That's what the New York Yankees are all about. And there's nobody that does it better than the New York Yankees. You know, everybody talks about old timers day and they talk about that. Uh, And I think that's kind of what may may have sold him, too, that I'm sure Andy told him that. You know, listen, look at me. You know, I'm still part of the organization after all these years. And I don't have to do much, but they want me to round because I was part of these championship teams. And you have that opportunity to come here and be part of that for nine years. Dude, you get the money too? Take it. And, and I think, like I said, the biggest thing, the bigger thing is what it, you know, the, the salary is one thing that you get being a New York Yankee, it's all the other things. The influences that you have, the ability to change people's lives, make people, you know, what, what you can do being part of that Yankee organization is second to none and it can go on for the rest of your life and you can be an impactful person even after your baseball years are over. And I'm hoping that that's what, what Garrett Cole can do because, you know, nine years in New York and if he can bring a couple championships, <laughs> that guy can write the, write, write, write his own, you know, ending to his story. Yeah, exactly. It's one thing to do it on the field for the Yankees. I think that's what everybody knows. And, you know, Garrett Cole mentioned that or alluded to that in the press conference. I think he, he slyly mentioned that he'd like to get the 30 championships before his contract and time here is done. But it's what you said. It's it's the association and the legacy. And, and, and I think that also runs parallel to what you also mentioned about actually being in New York, especially with you or just in general. You know, it's those intangibles and those immeasurables that I think are difficult to sell to everybody. But, you know, yeah. you, you hit it on the head. They're here. Oh, that's and... funny. I'll tell you just a quick story, real quick about that. Yeah, please. My wife, my wife and daughters, we went up two years ago to watch the ball drop, and it was the, the coldest winter ever in New York. And <laughs> of course, you know, yeah, exactly. And but and my girls, being from California, weren't used to. But we, but I knew all the NYPD guys, and I knew the guy that had the Marriott Marquis. So we had a table there. We could walk in and out. The NYPD escorted us everywhere we wanted to go. Oh, that's Long story short. 
yeah, long story short, at midnight, we're standing there. We have our own little private area out on the street with nobody around us. We're standing right in front of the ball, and my wife looks at me and goes, thank God you hit a home run for the New York Yankees and not the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah, and that's just it. And that's you know, and like I said, that's that is what's so great about New York and 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 everything is that they don't forget, they appreciate. And yeah. again, as as a former player, the thing that I love about doing all these you know these things back at the stadium and and being part of all that is hearing other people's stories about how we affected their lives with their dads, with their brothers, with their sisters, you know, the stories that you hear from these people, it just goes, it just makes you feel so good inside going, wow, you know, I never, I I just thought I was hitting the baseball and, you know, playing a game. You know, you realize the impact that you have and uh, it's just a pretty, it's pretty neat to, to have been part of that. It's so widespread. That's a funny story. That that's really that's a, that's a that's a great story. I'm sure that never gets old. I mean, because it's true. It's so widespread. Your your influence. I think in all of sports, but just a little extra here in in the New York market. And I mean, I could speak personally. I was in 1996 when you hit that home run. I know you don't love to be defined by that, and and you shouldn't be defined by just that moment, but. I was a I was a young teenager and it's ingrained in my mind not just the home run but you you know everything about your stance with the straight left leg and the hand on top right. of the helmet while you're spinning the bat like a toothpick and I mean that stuff has stayed with me you know throughout throughout my life to this point and and forever it's right. it's like you said sometimes you don't realize how influential influential you are and how much you give back uh, well, and the reason why the reason why I'm a, I think I'm a little bit different than most guys, and I do understand that, mm-hmm. is because I, when I was when I was a 14 year old kid, I did a TV show with Johnny Bench. That's right. Yeah, in spring training with the Reds and, and Pete Rose, right? Yep, and Pete Rose and Tommy Brenneman did hitting with Pete Rose. I did catching with Johnny Bench. At that time, I wasn't a catcher. I wanted to be Pete Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, I wore number 14, and Pete was my guy. But after we got done filming with Johnny, he looked at me and said, kid, are you a catcher? And I said, no, Mr. Bench. And I played the outfield and shortstop. He said, well, listen, all those drills that we just did together, you you were pretty good at it, and you're a natural. Wow. He said, catching's the, and he said, catching is the quickest way to the big leagues. And I'm like, you know, at that time, I was still thinking that I was going to go to college playing basketball. Uh-huh. And you know, baseball was a, a second sport. And I looked at it and he said, well, and I think he could tell that I, that didn't really catch my eye. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, maybe this will help you, kid. And he took off his catcher's mitt and he signed it to me. And I went home that night and I told my father, I am going to become a catcher. Yep. And if you look back at my career and the injuries and everything that happened through high school and, you know, everything else, going back to catching after my junior year of college and showing the Yankees that I could catch in the Kansas City Royals, that I could catch all of a sudden teams wanted me again and cause I didn't catch my first three years in college cause I had broken my foot out of high school. Huh. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's what they were looking for. They wanted me to go back, going back to catching. And so as soon as I went back to catching, that's when the Yankees signed me. And, uh, wow. you know, it, 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 and again, and I, when I ran into Johnny Bench in 2006 at the hall of fame game that we were playing in, oh, what was the first that like? time I, yeah, it was the first time I had seen him probably in 20, 25 years. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, Johnny, how you doing? He said, hey, Jimmy, how you doing? And I said, uh, listen, I want to thank you for everything. You know, you, you made my career. And he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, that's right. You're from Cincinnati. I go, no, that's not why. 
And I told him the story and he's like, oh my God, I remember you know, doing that show and, and being part of that. He goes, I can't believe you're that kid. And then he goes, do you mind if I tell that story? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. That's absolutely. Inc- that's incredible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool to see, again, you know, him go, wow, I didn't know I had that kind of influence over people, that's you know? And, and again, not, not just you know, not just a fan, you actually changed someone's life that I became a ball player, I became a catcher, and I had the career that I did, you know, for him to look back and go, wow, you know what, I, I was instrumental in part of that. It's got to be a pretty good feeling from his side. You know, just like when, like I said, when I hear kids tell me these stories, you know, it's, it's a good feeling to hear. Yeah, it's no question. And, you know, he may not even realize how profound it really is. Because like you said, you broke your foot. And if people read up about you, they know that you were good friends with Barry Larkin and you were projected to go really high in the June draft of 82. And, you know, like you said, you broke your you broke your foot. And who knows, maybe after you rehab the foot, you'd still stay on that path of trying to play different positions. And and your whole your whole career trajectory was was changed. Yeah. So that's, that's just. But, and I think, and again, part of the broken foot in those three years of not catching, you know, you look back on, and at the time, you know, you were, you know, I was frustrated because I wasn't getting drafted and I wasn't getting signed um, and couldn't know why because I was hitting the ball, you know, great, but not knowing that playing all those positions, mm-hmm. you know, and even though it was kind of setting me back a little bit and wasn't getting me drafted, it was preparing me for the future, being a major league ball player. Being a catcher that could play every other position is the reason I hung around for 11 years. That's incredible. You know, you know, and that was that was the thing. You know, I may, you know, it, it was it that was a, a, a kind of a gift that was given to me that I didn't see at the time, but then later on was able to see. Wow, if I hadn't broken my foot and just was just a catcher only, how short would my career have been possibly? It's, you know, it's remarkable yeah. to think about. It's yeah. maybe it's almost a good thing that you know you weren't able to process that in real time and just go on with your path as intended, right? I mean, exactly, it, it's, exactly. It's yeah. pretty cool stuff. And as much as I enjoyed that story, I know I started asking you about Cole. So just to wrap that up, what do you think Yankees fans can expect from him or should expect from him in the duration of this nine-year contract? Well, I think you're number one for the, at least the next five years. You've got a guy that every time you hand him the ball, that it's like an Andy Pettit, you, you're going to have a chance to win. Mm-hmm. And you've got a number one guy going. Um, you know, he is you know, probably in the top three right now of the best pitchers in the game of baseball. Uh, you know, you, you, you pray that his health remains. And if he stays healthy, uh, you're, you've got a pretty – pretty good anchor on your staff that you once you you know we always said with Andy Pettit you know Andy Pettit was our stopper even though he was a starter no question he was our stopper because if we had a four game losing streak on that fifth day we knew we had a really good chance to win because Andy Pettit usually won um and I think that's what they're going to have with Cole they're going to have someone that they can turn to that and and then and more importantly because the Yankees are going to get to the playoffs without Cole or not Right, just like they did last year. The difference was going to be when you get to that postseason, you have that number one guy that can shut a team down, game one of each series, and they didn't have that. They didn't have that the it last couple of years. It, it's huge, yeah. as you know. Yeah, yep. And um, I think you know, I think if you look now at the Yankee rotation, um, you know, we, we talked about the Mets four years ago with their their great four. Right. Uh, 
I think right now you got to look at the Yankees and go, wow, you know what? We've, we've, we've got this great offense and it's been great for and carried us through the season the last couple of years. But now we actually have that pitching staff again that every, you know, the first four days out of the five, we got a really good chance of, of putting some streaks together. And it's the one thing I always used to say about our teams in the late 90s mm-hmm. is, you know, there was, there was never a time you felt like you were out of it, even if we started off 10 games behind or whatever, because those teams could run off 20, 21 in a row pretty easily. That's what the Yankees have. No question. And in the beginning of your answer, you said mostly in the five years. And I think that's that's the key part. You know, yes, it's the nine-year contract and it's the historic $324 million, But I think the focus point should be on the first five years and, and just getting after it from that standpoint. So in your opinion, what do you think Cole needs to do on an individual level for his contract to be quote worth it because as you know a lot of fans are they'll be they'll be just as quick to cheer as they are to boo so what do you what do you think he has to do in order to quote unquote live up to this contract i think you just don't you know we always say the same thing about new york you just don't get caught up in the hype if he goes out and continues to do what he does and i think he will he's got that kind of head on his shoulders i spoke to him a few times you know and i've i've talked to some of the guys that know him out here in california you know he's got a pretty level head on his shoulders and and he's the kind of guy that really kind of embraces going to new york and i think if you do that i think if you're a player who comes from another organization who hasn't come up through the system and known all about the yankees Mm -hmm. um and you step into that situation it's it's daunting at times um you know you got all this yeah you got all this media you got all this you know things happening and you know i i I was laughing when i saw the uh there was something online that they they had a picture of him coming out of the cab and signing autographs and and he goes well he's doing he's off to a better start than randy johnson (laughs) shoving cameras out of the way on the sidewalk well exactly i think that's just it i think if if you're a player and, and and i just remember this myself because i was one of the few guys in the early 90s that lived in the city Oh, and, I really? took the four, and I took the subway to every game, nice. you know, and I also wore a cowboy hat and cowboy boots everywhere. And people were like, <laughs> you know, they respect, they, they liked the fact that I wasn't trying to change because now I'm part of the big city of New York. They'll sniff that, that out in a second. That's a really interesting well, point. Exactly. And I think if Garrett does that, I think if he comes in and goes, Hey, I'm still who I am. I'm just putting a different uniform on. I'm representing something bigger than, you know, in, in this game, but I'm still going to go out and do the same thing I've done and I'm going to go dominate. I'm going to go do the best and let, let everything fall into place. And I think if he does that, I think he's going to be perfectly fine. You know, you, you got to remember the same thing. If you look at Tina Martinez, if mm-hmm. you look at Roger Clemens, if you look at Wade Boggs, Paul O'Neill, all these guys who come over from other organizations, they usually struggle a little bit to get comfortable their first year. Yeah. D.D. Gregorius, yeah. you know, replacing a legend. The good thing about Garrett Cole, though, this is what I'll say. He's not coming in at a time that we lost. I mean, CC Sabathia, we lost, but CC was not at the top of his game. Right. It's not like he's coming in on, yeah. uh, to replace CC three years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. He's coming in as the number one guy, not replacing anybody, but joining a team that is really strong. And I think that's a big difference, too. He's, he's not replacing a legend. He's not replacing something that he has to be compared to. Right. We haven't had it. You know, Severino has been our best, but he's been off and on just because of injuries and things like that. So there hasn't been that number one guy for a few years for the New York Yankees. Right. Uh, that, that, that was dominant. So he doesn't really have that pressure. And I think that's going to be helpful for him, too. 
It's an amazing point because he's really afforded a luxury that those guys you mentioned weren't. Tino had to come yeah. in and replace Mattingly, I mean, which seemed like a taller task than the tallest building in New York. And then you have Didi coming in to fill the shoes of Jeter, and we saw how he struggled. And well, and even and even, even as great as Roger Clemens is, he came in at a time when he's replacing David Wells, he was traded for, to the guy that threw a perfect game. I mean, again, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, you know, it, it, we, we don't think about it from that standpoint. Because Roger Clemens was Roger Clemens, but exactly. he was coming in. He was, you know, he was coming in to face someone that in '98 was pretty dominant. Was one of the reasons they won the World Series. You know, he was replacing somebody too. So, again, Cole's in a really good position to come in and be that guy. No question. Yeah, I think the closest comparison that I've been hearing him being drawn to was Mike Mussina coming over, and and that's long enough ago where it's not the same kind yeah, of pressure. Definitely. There's historical pressure there, but not the kind of pressure, the immediate pressure that we're talking about. All right, well, those are amazing thoughts on Cole, and that insight was great. So before, I do want to get to hear more about you and your stories in your playing career and your big moments and what you're getting up to now, but let's just finish this thread and... I want to get your thoughts on the Yankees losing Austin Romine. We'll stay on your on your position, catcher. It got the attention it deserved, but I think that losing Austin Romine is bigger than maybe people realize. Nothing, Not to take anything away from elevating Kyle Higashioka and, and then adding Eric Kratz as insurance to that, but what do you think of the current situation for catcher, the Yankees? And, and then you obviously throw into the mix Gary Sanchez and how his ceiling is just the sky— but he's obviously had his struggles. So kind of talk about that whole situation. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history, you know, you got to think about five to seven weeks that Gary Sanchez probably is going to be out because it's just been consistent with, with, with his injuries. Right. Um, you know, and you think about you, – you don't think about guys like Austin Romine and what they've done uh, to be – to solidify, to, to have those times, you know. Yeah, I, I, I compare it to my career, you know, when I, when I was – first started with the Yankees and, you know, we had Mike Stanley and myself and, and, you know, it was one of those things that when Mike was hurt and I was catching three or two or three straight straight weeks, we didn't lose much. You know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, and actually there are pitching staff pitches, but you know, there's certain times that that backup catcher, you need to have almost that presence that, you know, when, you know, when you saw Cervelli leave, it was the same thing. Here was a guy that was considered, a part-time guy and all of a sudden he goes to Pittsburgh and he becomes, wow, you know, we got, we got a great everyday catcher here. Uh, you know, sometimes you get put into that role because you have that superstar like Sanchez in front of you. Mm-hmm. And, but Austin did such a great job of put it going into that role and, and, and get when, when he had that opportunity to be ready and to, and to do, and to excel at it. And I think that's a, that's what they're going to miss. They're going to miss having somebody that could be, a, and again, I go back to the Yankee teams in our year, mm-hmm. you know, you had Jim Leyritz, Daryl Strawberry, Tim Raines, and, you know, you can substitute Tim Raines with Chili Davis afterwards, right. but you had three guys on your bench that if we went anywhere else, we'd play 140 games. And, and right. so you guys were all every, you, you guys were, Oh, everyday role players. It was I me. Mean. Exactly, and I think that's, and I think that's where Austin was was able to push maybe Sanchez a little bit more too, because Gary's going, well, you know, if I stay out any longer, if I'm, you know, this guy's doing pretty good, you know, um, and I, and I think that's I think that will be an adjustment 
you know, they've got to hope that would like, just like when, it, when I left in 96, that, that they, they were worried that, you know, they weren't going to have somebody like me to be able to fill that. But Posada did a great job of filling that. Right. Yeah. That's, they've no, got to, they've, yeah, they've got to hope for somebody like Posada. They've got to hope that there's another backup guy there that's almost ready to maybe be the full time guy and can, can do the job and fill in for, for Austin. But I do think that's going to be a little bit harder to replace just because, you know, Austin had been there for a couple of years and the pitching staff was used to throwing to him. Yeah, they're definitely rolling the dice a little bit. And you bring up an amazing point, which is an intangible, in my opinion. Austin Romine, it's not something, this is not something you could measure. He was pushing Gary Sanchez because Gary Sanchez felt him, felt his presence there, that he can come in and he has stepped up and he could execute whenever his number was called. And that's that has an effect on Sanchez, especially when he's receiving criticism. And it's going to be unknown whether Higashioka can provide the same and, and step up in the same way a la Posada in 96, like you mentioned. Right. Well, and that's what's made the Yankees so successful over, the, you know, over this whole run that they've been on and all these championships and going to the playoffs. And that's what's been their strength is they've had guys that are sitting on the bench that the starters know that if, if I have an off day or if I have a, you know, if I'm hurt and I, I'm not going out there to play with maybe a, a you know, a, a chipped fingernail right. <laughs> that I can't just take the day off if I don't feel a hundred percent because there's someone there waiting to take my job. And if he goes in and plays well, I might be that guy on the bench, you know, and that's a really good dynamic for somebody like Aaron Boone to have as a strength. You know, that was one of Joe Torrey's biggest strengths that, you know, he had, multiple opportunities that play for players to be ready at any given moment when their number was called. And I think that's what, you know, Austin was, Austin was that kind of guy that if Aaron Boone had his set Sanchez for a day or a week or whatever, that Booney felt like, Hey, listen, I'm not losing anything. Yeah. You know, this guy is going to go in there and do just as good a job. And, you know, at times it was doing better, you know? And I think, uh, I think that's going to be a big thing, but again, you until you until somebody like that leaves, you don't know if you have that Posada. You don't know if you have that guy until they get that opportunity, and they just have to hope that whoever they, you know, whoever ends up being the backup, is one of those kind of players that says, "Hey, I, I should be playing every day. I could play every day somewhere else. So anytime I get this chance, I will be ready." Yeah, I'm really excited to monitor that whole situation, and Romine epitomized that, as did you. So I was very curious to see what kind of parallels you drew from that and, and everything. Let's just continue going down the line. The Yankees not resigning Didi Gregorius. What were your thoughts on that move? Another one, too. Another guy that, you know, again, came in there, replaced Jeter. No one thought he could do it. And then all of a sudden, to a point where I think a lot of people forgot about Jeter, uh, you know, and, and and had some very clutch postseason moments. He did. A guy that it never got overwhelmed by the postseason, kind of embraced it. You don't find that every day. And, you know, I don't think over the 162 games it's going to affect it that much. Um Again, depending on you know who's coming in, I know they have you know, Torres is going to go short, but who's behind him? Because if he's hurt, that's when that's when some of these things start showing up. Um, but again, same thing. You know, the the Yankees have had a history of being able to you know replace players, replace legends. It's kind of like the New England Patriots. Hmm. You know, you know when you lose one of your top guys, you have someone else that's ready to step in there and do the job that you didn't expect. And it's just a matter of 
whoever takes that job realizes that, okay, you know what? I'm coming into play for the New York Yankees. This is not, the, again, Seattle Mariners or the you know, Cleveland Indians. This is the New York Yankees, and I need to be ready and every day on top of my game. Uh, and if you have that, you, you could have somebody that, just like Didi did, come in and replace you know, replace Didi. So I, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's all those things that the initial shock of it may be felt, but eventually you hope someone can, you know, that takes over that position is able to replace him because, uh, you know, he, he did do a tremendous job as a Yankee. Uh, he was one of the few guys that I loved because not only was he great on the field, he was great off the field. Um, and that, you know, and that was a, a plus too, but, uh, I think, like I said, in the beginning, it'll be it'll, it'll be questioned, but I think there there's got to be somebody ready to take over the reins and continue to do it because that's just the New York Yankee style. Yeah, I agree with all that. I I think there there will inherently be the shock value if Glaber does end up sliding over to shortstop because they are the New York Yankees and we're still in the off season, so who knows? But as of now, that looks to be the case. And yeah, handful of errors. There's obviously going to be the knee-jerk reactions, but over the 162, I think I agree with you. I I don't think not having Didi there or, or knowing that he's not going to step in if there is depth, you know, if there's reasons for depth, I don't think that's going to totally affect them. But careers are made in the postseason, and he he did have his moments, so that'll be that'll be interesting to follow. But the Yankees did show their medal in 2019 as well. So many guys went down. It was oh. it was astronomical. So just to know that they're prepared and ready and they have the depth and they have the guys to execute and they've only added to that has got to be encouraging, I was I would think. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, 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 you say, okay, they just signed Garrett Cole. They're going to win more games. Well, you can't win more than – too many more than 103. Yeah. And, you know, but – I, again, it, it's you know it, it's at this point with the Yankees that it's no longer the season. It's what you do in the postseason. That's how you measure a successful season, which is great for the you know for the for New York, for the Yankees, for the city, for everything else. But at the same time, as the player, it puts a little added pressure on you because you know you're you're you know and, and again, some guys will handle it, some guys won't. Um, and that's 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 the beauty of playing in New York, and and that's the beauty of for us as fans to be able to sit and watch, and you know who can do it, and uh, it'll be it'll be I think it'll be a great you know a great 2020 for these guys, and and, and I'm excited because again they're going to run a pitcher out there every day that gives them an opportunity to win on any given day. Yeah. And I'm not the biggest guy for stats, but I and I know WAR is at the top of the list for guys who are really interested in statistics. And if you like that, then you'll like that Garrett Cole's WAR last year was 6.8, nearly seven. So, yeah, if you want to go off of 103, 103 wins for the Yankees last year, then you can amp that up to 110. So, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there is that. So yeah, a lot to be excited about. Last last player I wanted to get your opinion on before we we move on to you know to your career and everything was uh, the Yankees bringing back Gardner I thought that was a great move and and maybe that was in part due to Hicks and how he's going to be on the shelf probably till the end of the summer but nevertheless I think bringing him back just for clubhouse reasons is a great move your thoughts well yeah I mean this is not a guy that's at the you know again he might be at the end of his career but he's not declining you know and and I think that's the biggest you know I think that's the biggest thing and and again you know when you lose CC Sabathia when you lose you know, some of your veteran guys like Didi, uh, you need guys like Brett around for the clubhouse more, even sometimes more than the field. Um, 
and, and you know, and, and Brett has been one of those guys. I I actually presented him a couple of years ago the Heart and Hustle Award. Oh yeah, and had an opportunity. Yep, and had an opportunity to, you know, to talk to him, and you know, and he's just he's that kind of Yankee guy that you like a Thurman Munson, like uh, you know that that and I know again I don't put the talent on the field the same, but but just representing the Yankees, the hustle, the day in and day out, you know, the dedication, uh, and then also being part of a team and really, you know, making the team the most important thing. Uh, and again, I love the, you know, the, the pumping up of the team also, uh, you know, it, it, you need guys like Brett Gardner around when, when you play 162 games in that long season, because this is the kind of guy that, brings that enthusiasm day in and day out, you know, kind of, again, reminds me like of a, of a Pete Rose type of hustle player mm-hmm. um, that he's going to affect others around him and keep others on their toes. And you can't replace that. And I think it, they did a great job of bringing him back. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm one for intangibles and that's why I've always loved following his career and what he's been able to do. And there's probably no way to put an absolute number on this, but a guy like him is probably he could probably personally influence two to three, four wins a season just alone on his competitive nature and and sort of garnering the troops, if you will. You know what I mean? Well, exactly. And again, even if he's reduced to a role that he's not in there every day, he's still going to he have has the, his influence is going to be felt. Well, exactly. And that guy who's playing in front of him, maybe is going to feel a little more pressure because this guy behind him is already proven. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it, it, again, it, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody as far as I, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Even for Aaron, even for Aaron Hicks, not that he needs the motivation, just signed the five-year contract and, and he's got a bright future ahead of him, hoping that he could stay healthy. But just knowing that Gardner's out there doing it at his age, that's got to spark him a little bit. So yeah, all those thoughts on the 2019 Yankees heading into the 2020 season were great, but I got to talk about you. (laughs) I mean, Personally speaking, I was a kid when you did what you did in the ninety in the ninety six World Series against Wollers, and you hit that home run. I know it doesn't define everything about you, but it's ingrained in my mind as well as your approach to the plate. The straight left leg, spinning the bat with a toothpick while you have your hand up on your helmet. I can see it as I'm talking about it. I'm curious, where did that where did that stance or that signature move, if you will, where did that come from? Did you always have it? No, actually, I, all through high school, I batted like Pete Rose. I had the little crouch. And really? I, I was, yep. I was a line drive hitter. I didn't have a lot of power. Um, and then when I did break the foot uh, in, in high school, after I broke, broke my foot, um, I, they put a cast on it because what had happened was the Atlanta Braves were going to draft me, and I didn't know that, which is the irony of everything because that was a team I killed. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you a quick funny story on that in just a second. But yeah, please. Uh, so the, the Atlanta Braves called my dad and said, listen, we're going to make your son a draft pick. Uh, does he want to go to college? Is he willing to sign? You know, back in those days, they used to call out the parents ahead of time. And really? They were allowed to do that back then. And this is back in 1982? Um, this is 82, yeah. Okay. And uh, they called my dad and said, hey, oh, is your son thinking about going to college? What do you think? Yeah. My dad didn't know I was out playing tennis at the time. And I came home from playing tennis with a air cast on my foot. And my dad was like, oh, what geez. happened? Yeah, what, what did you do? And I said, Dad, not a big deal. It's four weeks. I'll be fine. I said, it's just a hairline fracture. Mm-hmm. Not, not a big deal. And he's like, oh, it's a big deal. I just got a phone call today from this scout. you know, And uh, they want to sign you. And now I got to tell them that you got a broken foot. 
Oh, and sure enough, they called back the next day and they said, you know, did you talk to his son? Is he willing to sign? And my dad said, well, he's willing to sign now for anything because yeah. he broke his foot. <laughs> and they said, you're kidding me. And they said, well, we're going to pass on this. Um, right then and there. That's, a, that's what they told your dad? Yep, we're going to pass. But we, if it's only four weeks, we'll come and look at him during the summer when he's playing for Midland, which was the Barry Larkin team that I was on. Okay. Um, and so – Sure enough, eight weeks passed. I was playing. I was playing again, and I was. I they came and watched me play in a tournament. And I was raking the ball, and they came to my dad and said, "Listen, we want to sign him." Huh. And my dad said, "Okay, give him ten grand." And the scout said, "Okay, I'll get back to you." And they called him back. Dad, my dad, back the next day, and they said, "We were only okay to give him five thousand." Oh. And my dad said, "Well, screw screw that. He's going to college." <laughs> he, and, he made that decision and, for you, did you have any yep, input on that? I, didn't even know the conversation was happening. <laughs> and uh, so, so my, you know, my dad said, now you're going to, you're going to go to just junior college in Georgia. That way you can get drafted every year, you know, still. Okay. And uh, so I went to junior college in Georgia for two years, never got signed. Then I went to Kentucky and again, it wasn't catching, but I was, I was hitting, mm-hmm. but I was playing third base in the outfield, which I was an average player. Um, so never got signed. And then, my, after my junior year in Kentucky, I went out to play in the Hayes, Kansas, which was the Jayhawk League, which my host family was the same host family five years later that had Albert Pools, and Pools signed as a free agent out of there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I, I always kid my, my the people that I lived with. I go, hey, you guys must be good luck. You got me at Pools. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, but I was playing out there, and that's when I ended up signing with the Yankees. But the funny part of the story and, I, and the, that, that I love about it was two years ago at the draft, they were talking to these two scouts from Atlanta okay. that about you – know, they were talking about players that got away. And they told this story at the, at the press conference, and the Cincinnati Inquirer wrote the article about it. Um, and it, they talked about they were sitting in the suite in 1996 in game four in Atlanta. And when I hit the home run, they both looked at each other and said, do not tell Schultz that we could have had this guy for $5,000 and get a changed history. <laughs> he didn't know that. No. Oh, no, that's incredible. No. Yeah. And, and, and they told the story. This is, this is, there was this kid from Turpin High School that got away from us. And, you know, it, it, was, it was really a, a funny story to, uh, to hear. It, it, was, it was even better for, like, a lot of these Atlanta fans that, you know, like, hey, you know, you killed us, and I'm like, yeah, but I could have been a brave. Did that you know? did that story come out around that time or shortly after that time? We, you know, it, it, it literally came out in two years ago when they were sitting at this thing. Wow. This, this, they were. It was, it was during the winter meetings, I think, or no, during the, the draft, and all these scouts, and they were talking at the time about how important scouting was. Mm-hmm. And some of these scouts were sharing their stories about, you know, players that they got or players that they didn't get. And this one scout happened to tell the story about this guy from high school. And, you know, we could have signed him for five grand more and we could have maybe changed the history because he would have never become a New York Yankee. That's unreal. And, yeah, and, and scouts so. have amazing stories. I did a piece about how scouts were being honored at the Baseball Hall of Fame and the stories that they have and the decisions that they make and, and sort of what they recount on players that go on to be Hall of Famers. I mean, yep. if you ever have a chance to talk to a scout, you might as well just 
buckle in and listen to some amazing stories. I mean, one like that. I can't even imagine if, if that story were to come out around that time in 96 or shortly after. I mean, that might have elevated your, your status and, and legacy just yeah, exactly. through the roof. Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, those, and those are the fun things that, you know, like I said, it's, it's when you look back on all this mm-hmm. and you realize that, you know, there was, there was purpose for everything. There was a reason for everything. And, you know, uh, sometimes you just have to, you have to have faith and be and go, you know, and that's really what my, when I wrote the book, that was what my book was all about was just having the faith that, you know what, you, you don't know what's going to happen, but you have faith that whatever's happening at this time is meant to happen. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, you know, you, you talked about you know, not wanting the home run to define me. Well, it's great that they, it, that defines my baseball career. I'll take that all day. <laughs> um, but as far as me as the person, uh, it's, it's a little different. I, you know, there's a legacy as a person I want to leave too. And that's all about my faith and what I believe in, and, 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 you know, God being my center point of my life. Um, you know, that, that is the legacy that you leave your children and other people that, uh, that can't be, you know, again, can't define you. Yeah. That, can define you. Actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's said in so many words outside the lines and, and sort of the balance of the two. So, right. I, I couldn't agree more. And the book you're talking about is catching heat, which, which is a great read. And I would encourage anybody looking for, you know, for a great come up story like that to definitely pick it up and read it. Where would you say that, your faith and and everything and your patience uh, with the process. Where where does that all come from? Is that is that straight from your parents or does it come from yeah, different it's, places? It's it's my mother and father and mostly my father. My father was uh, my father told me something in a very when I when I told him I wanted to be a professional athlete, mm-hmm. um, he began pushing me like you wouldn't believe. I, I always tell people that are older, maybe not your age, but maybe a little older that he was a Woody Hayes and Bobby Knight combined. Really? Um, yeah. He was that type of in your face. Like, you know, when I would go three for four, why didn't you go four for four? When wow. I had 20, when I'd score 20 points and, and I can't, I tell you, you know, I, I can't tell you Benjamin enough that how many times other parents would tell you, you're going to ruin your kid. You're going to ruin your kid. You're too hard on him. You did it. And my dad said, Nope. This particular, because my brother was a better athlete than I ever could be, but my brother didn't want to be pushed. My brother just wanted to have fun and play on a team and be part of something. Is that right? Was he an older brother or a younger brother? Oh, older brother. Yeah. Okay. So you saw, so you saw that unfold in front of you. Exactly, and I think my dad was kind of waiting to see what I wanted to do because he knows he pushed my brother too hard. Interesting. And yeah, and so when I told him I want to be a professional athlete, the, the first thing that he told me, he said, "Okay, Jimmy." And I don't think my, you know, again, I don't give my father that much credit that he knew I was going to play for the New York Yankees. But the one thing he told me when I decided to be, tell him at 14 years old or 15 years old that I wanted to be this professional athlete, he told me, he said, okay, you only have to answer to two people. And of course, you know, I was like, okay, you and mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good, that's a fair answer when you're 15. Yeah, exactly. And he said, no, he said, you have to answer to yourself and to God. And he said, this is what I want you to do starting now. And you'll be, if you can do this, you'll be able to handle anything that life throws at you. And he said, I want you to wake up every morning when you brush your teeth. And he said, I want you to answer to yourself and answer to God and say, I'm going to go out today and either make, do something to make myself better or to make somebody else better to serve someone else. 
Hmm. And he said, if you can, and then you go out that day and you go do all those things. And at the end of the day, when you're brushing your teeth, you answer it again to yourself and to God and say, did I do the best that I could do today? And if I didn't, I promise that I'll go out and do it again tomorrow. Now, at the time, again, this was before Tony Robbins and before all these wonderful self-help things that were out there. Mm-hmm. Basically, what my father was saying is saying what these guys say. When you, if you say thank you for what you have every night and every morning, you're going to do something on a regular basis every day that's going to make you better. And that was my father's whole thing. And I look back at it now and realize that at the time I didn't. I was just like, okay, what does that mean? Exactly, yeah. But what it did for me was when I got to New York, when I played in the media capital of the world, when these guys were, you know, when I was first coming up and they were saying about, you know, all this, Larry's is bigger than his bravado and all these things, it didn't affect me because, again, my father had instilled in me that you only answer to two people. It didn't mean you were, you know, not nice to other people and that you weren't part of a team and you weren't part of something else. But as far as your everyday if you could do, if you could go out there and do something good for yourself or for somebody else, that your life would become better, and you could handle just about anything. And that's what my father instilled in me. And uh, you know, to this day, you know, I have on my mirror in my bathroom, "Thank you, Father." Wow, really? And and you know, again, not my dad. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's it, it's thank you, Father, and it reminds me every single day when I wake up that okay. You go out today and you try to do something positive, something good for yourself or for somebody else. And if you can do that, you're going to make a difference in the world. And, uh, you know, it's 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 been something that, again, I look back on and when people ask me that question, where did you get this strength from or where did you get these, you know, being able to handle these situations from, you know, uh, it, it was it was bad advice that my dad gave me at a very young age that I continued and you know it was it was quite of uh quite profound at the time because you know it was i don't think my father knew what he was the impact that he would have just like johnny bench didn't know the impact that he would have and how that would help me get through not only baseball but my trial and everything else that i went through uh and and and, you know divorces and everything else that has happened to me how those words gave me the strength to be able to get through those times that's a really interesting point. He may not have realized himself how profound it was. He may have just been giving you a line to use as motivation when you were 15 years old. But how could he have known or you have known? It ended up manifesting itself really maybe for the first what? for the first major way in about 10 or 12 years later when you wound up in New York. Yeah, exactly. And that was and again, it was all about living by faith, you know, and the faith that you if, if you do the right things, that good things will come to you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that's you know, and, you know, again, he he was one of those again that, that said, hey, don't ever get satisfied. I mean, I remember when I got caught up for the first time. This is why I love my dad to death. When I got caught up the first time and I walked through the back state back doors of Yankees, the old Yankee stadium and right through the monuments and like, Oh my God, I'm here. That's you know, I, I'm here. And I walked up and I stood on the mound back then. We didn't have cell phones. Cause if I had a cell phone, I would have probably called him from the mound <laughs> and FaceTime him and said, dad, look where I'm at. But I couldn't do that. Back then. But I walked in the locker room and I called him up and said, dad, I made it. I'm here in Yankee stadium. And he said, son, that is awesome. Now, what are you going to do to stay there? That's cool. That was his first thing was don't ever get satisfied with your current situation because it could change. Be ready. When you, re- when you reach a goal, set a new one. 
you know, and that's how, that's the only way that you'll be successful in the, in the next succession of your life if you set new goals when you've reached the old ones. And I think that was an important thing that he also taught me. Yeah, and it also sounds to me, I agree with that mindset, but it also sounds, the way you talk about your relationship with your dad is that he did, he was able to sort of appreciate the moment and the landmarks that you reached, but he was quickly able to help you refocus or help you channel by those words and that advice, which I think is yeah. the cool part of it all. Yep. I mean, you know, I, he told me two times in my life and he was proud of me. One as a ball player when I won the World Series in 96, and then in one in 2004 when I decided to quit the game of baseball and come home and be a dad because I had just got divorced to custody of my kids. Mm-hmm. And I just signed back with the Padres and the – the judge in Florida, the family court judge said, if I go back to play baseball, even though my ex-wife was an addict and had some major issues, that my three boys at the age of two, seven, and nine would stay with her if I went back to play baseball. Oh, wow. And I had a hard time with it because I had no money left because I fought for custody of the kids. Um, and a million-dollar contract from the Padres would have been very helpful. But I can, couldn't imagine leaving those kids behind. And when I called my dad up and said, Dad, I don't know what to do, he said, Jimmy, pray on it. And, you know, God will give you answers. And sure enough, that night I went to bed about three in the morning. My son, Phoenix, who was two years old, woke up in his crib screaming and yelling. And I picked him up out of his crib and I held him. And all I could think about was if I wasn't here, if I wasn't here and his mom was strung out or something was wrong, who would be here to take care of this kid? And how could I possibly even think about hitting a baseball and leaving something like this behind? And I called him up the next day and said, Dad. I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. I'm not taking the contract. And that's when he told me, son, as a father of who raised you, you have made me so proud as a man. You know, and, and that was the one time, like I said, that he told me he was proud of me as a man. For, and then the other time was as a baseball player when we won the World Series. So that, that those are important things also for, for you know, for that my dad, how my dad raised me. I mean, I don't know what better... Uh, there is an example to put in perspective hitting a home run in the World Series versus what you just said there. And, I mean, that's part of the reason why your story is so incredible. And I can only imagine that's part of the reason why you sort of leveraged that and transitioned into a, a career post-baseball as a motivational speaker. I'm sitting here motivated right now. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. And like I said, I think a lot of people you – know, I, I remember giving the book to Mariana Rivera – Okay. Uh, you know, it was my teammate for all these years. And, you know, right. I, at the time during my baseball career, you know, I kind of lost my faith with, God, you know, like going to church and all that stuff. I got caught up a little bit in, in the limelight and all the other things. And when I gave Mo the book after everything that I've been through since then, mm-hmm. he looked at me and he said, wow, I didn't realize that you, you know, God is your center point. He said, I didn't realize that, you know, how much, because we don't share a lot outside the locker room. Yeah, that's you know, what I was going to ask it, you. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people don't realize that. Yeah, we're part of teammates, and it's special to be part of that '96 team and the '99 team and all that great stuff. But as far as our personal lives, as far as our families and, and, and what's going on, these guys, most guys that I played with, I would say 97 percent have no idea what I went through, what happened, what my kids were going through, what my family went through. No, none of them have any idea. Of of how that you know, that whole thing happened, and whenever I give these guys a book and they actually read it, <laughs> yeah, I think, they, uh, yeah, I think yeah. you have to be in a locker room environment at whatever level to really understand that you can have incredible camaraderie and know someone inside and out in terms of inside the lines, and that includes being in the locker room, of course. But 
it's really incredible how you can know someone so well in one sense, in one dimension, ath- athletics in this case, and virtually not at all. And you could, yeah. you can learn something about some guy who's sitting next to you or you talk to every single day, and then you say, what? I didn't know that about you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, and, that, and that's just it. That's that's where, you know, again, you always say the same thing that you – I remember Don Mattingly and Wade Box telling me you know, my first couple of years in the big leagues that Jimmy, keep your family close to you because when it's all over with, that's really the only people you have left, hmm. you know, because again, unless you live in the same hometown and you guys grow up together, you know, and your families are together, that you really don't get those relationships, you know, in baseball, even like you said, even though, man, you spend 180 days hmm. together plus spring training you would think that you, the guy sitting next to you, you know a lot about. You don't. You know, you, uh, yeah. you know, that's that's that that's the difference between sports legacies and, and life legacies. Or how hard was it to sort of keep that advice close to you, or, or like remind yourself of that? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, again, it was you know, I, I, during even though when I got kind of lost, you know, my track a little bit with with the with the lifestyle and things like that. I still went to church every Sunday. Uh, you know, I, I still had that, you know, that, and, it, and it used to be almost a, a joke with the, the guys like Girardi and Pettit who were really true in their faith. Uh, when I would walk into the locker room and go into to Bible study and they'd be like, "Uh Oh, lightning's going to be striking here soon. <laughs> that's funny because that's yeah. funny because Pettit, it was kind of public knowledge about how close Pettit was to his faith. Yeah. Guys like Joe Girardi, guys like Mike Stanton, uh, uh, Pettit, um, those guys, they were, they, you know, they were true to their phase. And, and I think it was different back then. It was almost kind of a, a taboo to t- say that you were a Christian back in those days. Oh, interesting. That's why I love <laughs> Jeremy Lin and Tim Tebow and how they shifted that paradigm to a no, embrace your faith as an athlete, embrace your faith that what God has given you. And all of a sudden now it's, it's, the cool thing to do to show that you're a man of God, that you are a man, you know, it, it, that paradigm is so great for somebody like myself mm-hmm. who played during those beginning years when it was almost, like I said, taboo to now where it's where the faith of a person and the faith of a man and the faith of a, the faith of an athlete is embraced. It can only help other kids realize that, you know, God is important. And I think that's, that's something that I'm really, I am so excited to see as a fan how these players acknowledge their faith as, as their center point. And that's something that, again, has, has shifted from the days that I played. Yeah, I think it goes way beyond sports. Like you said, the general public has seen it for decades and decades in the post-game interview and things like that. The player often says, I want to thank God. But guys like Tebow and Jeremy Lin went behind the curtain and they took it to another level. I mean, I know I come from a Jewish faith and my father has told me over and over again how impactful it was to see Sandy Koufax not play on the Jewish high holidays. And even in some cases when they fell on incredibly important games. And so so stuff like that, like you mentioned, is it's transformative. So it's cool to see for sure. 
And, and, you know, and speaking of your faith, I want to jump back. I know I'm going all over the place, but jumping back into your playing days, you played for four different Yankees managers, Bucky Dent, Stump Merrill, Buck Showalter, and Joe Torre. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but your faith must have played a huge role in sort of adjusting to different cultures and, and different directions and, 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 and the different styles of those guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of one of the biggest things with most of my managers that and I always had a hard time with was not being having a chance to play every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I first came up, Stump Merrill was my manager. I had had him in AAA, and I got a chance to play every day, um, and you know, I excelled pretty well. And then the following year, I came back in '91. Um, they decided to move me back to catching, and I won the opening day catching job and caught the opening day in Detroit. And then I sat for a bunch of straight weeks and, um, um it's gotta be tough. Yeah. And, and it was very tough because at that time I was kind of my own agent. I didn't really even have an agent and I was the one walking into the club out or into the offices and saying, Hey, what's going on? Why am I not playing? Da, 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 da. Long story short, the managers that I played for stump was the first one. Uh, Buck Walter, the second one, um, you know, Bucky Dent, I played just as I was, I was just in spring training with Bucky. I didn't oh, okay. get a chance to play for at the major league level. Um, and then when Stump took over, I got called up. Then Bucky Showalter, who had been my manager almost for three or four years in the minor leagues, we had won three championships together. That's right. You won uh, a championship at all three levels. I wanted to bring that up. I don't know how many people yeah. have done that, but that's a nice feather in the cap. And then winning well, on a major actually, league level? Uh, yep, I won, I won in single A with Fort Lauderdale in 87. We won in '88 and '89 at Double A, <laughs> and then in in '89 uh, we won at Triple A. I mean, it's got to be a short yeah. list of guys to win Single A, Double A, Triple A, and the World Series. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, that was that was you know that was one of the things. And then I even like better that you know I I know I'm the only guy that played in the World Series in '96 with the Yankees against the Yankees in 98 with the Padres and Padres, then went back and, and then went right back to the Yankees and won a world series in 99. <laughs> that was quite, that was quite a run for myself back then. <laughs> you're not, you're not kidding. <laughs> yeah. And have an impact on all three of those. World series. Yeah. You hit some major home runs for the Padres. I mean, and yeah. people, uh, a lot of people don't remember that of course, because it was such a historic year for the Yankees, but you blasted the ball for the Padres when you were part of that yeah. team. Exactly. So that was, you know, that was some of the the, 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 the moments that they, I always tell people, you know, the 96 team you know, started that dynasty to, to be a key part of that, to be a key part of that 98 Padres team that even though we lost to the Yankees in the World Series, our run that we went on got them approval for that new Petco Park that they're in today. Oh, is that right? Yep. You know, and to be a part of those two moments that changed the direction of the organizations and having a pretty big impact on that as a part-time player who was never drafted, you got to think, you got to thank your lucky stars that you were given those opportunities. And you got to thank God and say, listen, I didn't realize it at the time, but now I look back on it. I was so blessed That's to cool. be part of, be part of that. And, you know, no one can ever take that away. No, yeah, that's, that's that's cool. And you have another thing also, which, you know, just comes to mind. You had a chance to be a teammate of Tony Gwynn, who, you know, in my opinion, I mean, I'm 35 years old and I've seen amazing athletes in my generation, but I feel like Tony Gwynn is one of the best pure hitters I've ever seen. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, by far. I mean, you know, I, I caught Tony at the very end of his career, and it was, it was, you know, it, it wasn't. It was a shame because I was really after playing with Don Mattingly, mm-hmm. who to me is the greatest teammate I've ever had, one of the greatest men, not you know, not only as as a ball player but as a, a mentor to me, uh, had such an impact on my career and in the way that I approach things. When I went to play in San Diego, Tony, I was you know, looking for the same type of thing. And I never realized my short time I was in San Diego, what impact that Tony Gwynn had on the city of San Diego. Um, I mean, how can you put that into words, right? Well, exactly. And the things that he had done for the community, I never knew about those things. It's kind of like when Mr. Steinbrenner passed away. You didn't learn about what Tony Gwynn was until he passed away. How great and how all these things that he had done for San Diego and been a part of, I kind of felt bad because I was like, wow, I didn't really like look at him like that when I was playing with him. And because I didn't know. You know, I, I I was lucky to play with Donnie and see it for five years. Yeah, where I wasn't with Tony long enough to really understand. Wow, how blessed was I to be able to play with Tony Gwynn? You know, in in in, in the legacy that he left and what he did. How you know, it's a shame that I was not appreciative enough at the time to know who I was playing with. You know, and and and, and again, that's a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys that you, you look back on and you're like. Because you're you know, you're in competition every day. You're it's a different mindset. Yeah. And once you once you get away from the game and you go, wow, you know, look, I, I played with Roger Clemens, I played with Tony Gwynn, I played with Wade Boggs, I played, you know, when you sit back and you realize the people that you play with and the impact that they had on that sport, uh, man, you know, I was in these guys' hitting groups and learned so much from them just about hitting. Wow, maybe you know a lot of their influence may have worn off of me, not maybe on the field, but afterwards, uh, to, to realize the impact that you can have on people. It's incredible. Yeah, you can't stop the smell of the roses. I mean, if you do, you're probably going to find yourself off the team and, and out of the league, which is ironic. But in, in the case of a guy like Tony Gwynn, unfortunately, he was taken from us at, at 54. It's just, it's very, very cool that you had a chance to at least absorb, you know, his presence and be around him. And you said Don Mattingly is your best teammate. I'm not shocked to hear that at all. I know Jeter has spoken so profoundly about what Mattingly did for him early in his career and just little subtle pieces of advice that stuck with him. So talk about some of your past teammates. I mean, obviously, Mattingly's far and away the best in your opinion. I don't think anyone's going to argue. I mean, who else did you like playing with? Were there ones that you, you didn't like playing with? Any interesting stories? Well, I think, I, you know, I, I look at, you know, Wade Boggs, when Wade Boggs came over to, to number one, he took my number, so I didn't really appreciate that too much. <laughs> um, but he came he came over uh, very similar to Clemens that, you know, when he was not a good teammate, that he was past his prime, that he was done, you know, that, you know, all these, all these media negative connotations that you, when you read about it, because you don't know the guy, you read about it, you have this perception that, oh, who is this guy? And then he came into the locker room and to me fit in so perfectly left his ego behind. And that's one of the things that I I always tell people about when I do, when I do my corporate speaking about why the Yankees are so successful, why they've been so great over, over such a long period of time, because when you come in to play for the New York Yankees, George Steinberg always said two things. Number one, you're going to (laughs) shave. Number two, you play for the team on the front. That's why there's no name on the back. Love that. 
And what I love so much about over the years of seeing these guys, these superstars come in these from other teams, is that when they came in, the, the likes of Buckshell Walter and Joe Torrey, they told these guys, you come in, you're part of this. You're, there's not an exception because you're great. When we stretch at 415, there's going to be 25 guys stretching, not 21 because these other four guys are, are all-stars or they're superstars. It was you left your ego at the door when you came in this locker room and you were one of 25 guys and that you were no more important. And I love the fact, I love the fact that we got to see guys like Ruben Sierra, guys like Mondesi, guys like that, that came in and didn't want to buy in. Yeah. That Mr. Steinbrenner said, okay, you don't want to buy in. You're out of here. Yeah. See you later. You don't want to buy into our thing. You know, we have a certain code, a certain way of doing things, and we know that we've been successful doing that. We're not going to change. And I think that's the greatest thing about the New York Yankees, as they say that. And again, I, I said the New England Patriots earlier. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things. They say, "Listen, thank you for your services, but if you don't want to be here, go ahead, go somewhere else, because we can replace this." Yeah, and, and I mean, think that to your point about Ruben Sierra, right? He had such a turbulent career, and I I don't know, correct me obviously if I'm wrong, but he didn't ultimately have a role in that '96 team, right? Well, he had a role getting Cecil Fielder here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't want a role, and that's what I'm saying. That's that's right. the thing about you know, and, and when Mondesi didn't want to buy in when he was there, they got rid of him and they brought in some people. You know, it's it's one of those things that. The New York Yankees and the way they do business and the way they they do baseball yeah. um, is, 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 is so – they've had so much success at it because we have a certain core beliefs and we are not going to change those because we have seen over time that those are successful. And you know, if you don't want to buy into our way you – know, Again, it was very similar to, you know, some of the things that I went through at times with the Yankees was, you know, I got traded a couple of times because I was like, listen, I don't want to be that part-time guy. In 96, I hit the home run to won the World Series. Mr. Steinbrenner was nice enough to allow me to be traded the following year because I wanted a chance to play every day. Hmm. And, he, and he's like, listen, you don't want to be that part-time guy? Fine. I'll give you the opportunity to go somewhere else. You know, and, and that was just it. That was their... That was the way they ran the organization. That's the way they still run the organization. And that's why they're so successful is because you want to come in here and be a part of this. Great. You're going to buy into everything that we do because we have a proven model that's not worked two years, five years. It's worked over a hundred years. And, you know, there's, there's a reason there's 28 championships. It's because we do a certain way. We do things a certain way. And I think that's the greatest, the, the, one of the best things about the, the Yankees that they have is that, you know, Garrett Cole showed up to his press conference after getting $326 million. And guess what? He didn't have a beard. If you remember, yeah. you brought up earlier about him getting out of the cab and comparing it to how much better it was, how much significantly better it was than Randy Johnson's first impression with the media on the street. But yeah, he showed up with the hair maybe a little longer than it was, ended up being at the press conference and didn't have a beard. And people were saying, oh, he's got 20 hours to shave. And it was obviously good back page fodder and stuff to talk about, but really exactly. nothing nothing exactly. to talk about. So yeah, that's good stuff. We're, we're Wade Boggs and Roger Clemens, the most significant uh, free agent or you know, signings to come over to the Yankees in your time? Well, no, we had Paul O'Neill, David Cohn. Uh, those were two other ones that were huge. Were huge. You know, it was, you know, the impact that those two guys, O'Neill and Cohn had, uh, 
O'Neill from a standpoint of just you know, not a rah-rah guy, not a guy, but here's a guy that expected perfection from himself. And when he didn't play up to that, he beat himself up. You know, it was one of those things I was, I was like, oh, is he a crybaby? You know, do, do, do you hate that stuff? I'm like, no, he's mad at himself. He's not showing up other teammates. He's not, you know, he's mad at himself, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and you can't be, you know, you can't be mad at that type of thing. I always tell the people the same thing, you know, they always talk about a team. Well, there is a me and team. And if you, if you take that and you try to do your best and you try to be your best every day, you're going to help that team. And I think that's one of the, you know, guys like O'Neill, David Cohen from the pitching standpoint, uh, what he was able to do to mentor guys like Pettit and, 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 and other, you know, the effect that those guys saw, you know, like I mentioned Don Mattingly earlier, you know, it wasn't. One of the things I loved about Donnie so much was that when he was injured and he wasn't playing and I was the guy that was replacing him at first base, he was out there every day trying to help me. Is that right? Every day trying to, yep, giving me a way to hold Vince Coleman on so he couldn't get a big jump. You know, just certain things that he would try to help to, even though he wasn't able to participate with the team, he was still trying to help it. Those are the things that, that I took with me as far as, okay, wow, you know, this, this, this is a superstar. This is the guy for five years was probably the greatest player ever in the game and, and a Yankee uh, helping me. And I just thought that was so great. And I, like I said, I think every guy that came over during that period, the O'Neills, the Cones, the, the, uh, the Boggs the Clemens, even David Wells, when he came in, I didn't get the chance to play with David, but, you know, we're good friends now. And just to hear the stories he tells that when you came in there, you just became part of <laughs> the unit and you were no bigger than that. And you were, you were, you were required to show up just like every other, at the 25th guy on the team, you were required to do certain things that this was the core of how the Yankees were built and why they were successful. And I think that was, that was really uh, the, uh, the, the greatest thing about being part of that team for, you know, those 11 years. That's so cool. I mean, all those stories about those guys. But, I mean, you also hit on the point of why Don Mattingly was Mattingly and why he was so beloved and, of course, why he was the captain. Because no hitting coach, no pep talk, no nothing could add up or hit the same kind of value that that had when Mattingly is out and he's down because of injuries, but he's still helping you do subtle things. I mean, you take that with you, I would think, so oh, much, yeah. so much more than a, a, a hitting tip or a, or an attaboy or let's watch some film or something. Something. Well, again, again, the, the, the beauty of what he taught me at that time was, and he helped me because I, again, I struggled with managers and coaches because I wanted to play every day. Mm-hmm. But what he made me understand is, okay, Jimmy, you may not be in there today, but you can do other things to help the team. So you're still part of this team. That was, that was something that guys like myself, and I think some of the players nowadays need to hear is that, listen, you don't have to be the, the star. You have to be just part of this. You have to be a, a, a cog that helps the wheel run, you know? And I think that's that's the, what Donnie kind of really helped me understand, knowing that I was this cocky young ball player that wanted to play every day, was <laughs> mad that I wasn't. You know, he was, showed me certain ways that, hey, listen, even if you're not there today, dude, you can help. And not everyone, yeah, not everyone wants to hear it or can hear it. So that's a testament to you as well. Any surprise yeah. that Manningly went on to be a manager? Not at all. Nope, that's exactly, you know, Doesn't you look at like certain it, yeah. guys, Yeah, you look at certain guys in the locker room and Donnie was one of those, Joe Girardi, you knew was going to be a manager one day. Uh, you know, you could tell that these guys, they just had that, that little extra to them mm-hmm. um, and, and, and were, were strong leaders. 
Anybody on this current Yankees roster or, or just recent Yankees history, I guess, that, that you could see being a manager who maybe currently isn't? You know, unless you're in a locker room with her every day, it's kind of hard to tell. You know, I, again, I'm like you guys. I see their personality on the field. I don't get to spend that extra time in the locker room. And, you know, the reason why you would see a Girardi, you know, knowing that he was going to be a manager one day, this guy was reading, you know, statistics of the scouting reports. He was doing all this stuff every day as a player. Really? You realize that that, that, that was going to eventually – you know, he had a passion for it, mm-hmm. and therefore you knew he was going to eventually be, you know, be be, be managing. Um, I, I I see personalities from us from the stands, just like you guys do, but I'm not in there every day, so I wouldn't really know. You know, if I could tell you, oh yeah, Brett Gardner, he's a guy that could be. A, you know, I, I see who he is on the field. And I see the enthusiasm that he brings and things like that. And he might be a great coach one day. Uh, whether or not he has the ability to manage, I don't know because I don't see him on a daily basis, knowing that he knows the game inside and out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a guy, a guy like Austin Roman, he would come to me if I probably got a chance to know him a little bit that probably is that kind of guy because he wasn't every day, but yet every day he was called on, he was ready. Hmm. So he was prepared. Great point. And he, and he's a catcher. Most catchers are great managers because not only do we have to study the game, the entire game, and know what every position player has to be on certain balls that are hit in certain positions on pitches, we have to know also how to get the most out of our starting pitcher and the relievers that come in that day that we're catching. So we have to know psychology-wise how to approach an Andy Pettit, a David Cohn. You know, they have different personalities. You had to approach them in different ways. You know, we always won't laugh at Major League Baseball when we watch that movie when they come out to the mound and they have the conference and they're talking <laughs> about wedding gifts. Yeah. You know what? In all honesty, people ask me, does that really happen? I go, not to that. That's Hollywood to an extreme. <laughs> but but no, it's not too far off. There were times that I'd have to go out and talk to Andy Pettit one way and talk about mechanics and talk about you know certain things. But then I would walk out to talk to David Cohen and I'd be like, dude, the blonde in the first row, she wants your number. You need to get out of here. You know, <laughs> it, 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 there was different ways that you had to approach people uh, that to be able to take them out of the moment that was so pressurized, so high, and uh, and try to get them refocused on what the task at hand was. There were certain ways that you had to deal with it. And, and when that reliever came in to a tight situation, you had to be – you were the first guy that talked to him. You know, and you had to go over science. You had to go over things. But then you also had to think about what you could tell him to get him to relax. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think that's why, again, catchers are so much better at managing and, and being, even if it's not baseball, mm-hmm. when they go on, like, you know, I'm in real estate now. And, you know, part of teams that I'm part of, I think I'm a good leader because I know that there's going to be certain personalities that I have to treat one way and, and, and not treat the same person, you know, that's helping me the same way because there's different personalities. And that's the part, that's the thing that you have to get to know, you know, as a catcher. And I think uh, yeah, that's why I, I always tell people, if you want to, if you're going to hire a catcher to do something other than baseball, you're probably going to be successful with them as long as you teach them the right things because they know how to lead people. 
Yeah, they see everything from that perspective that you just so eloquently detailed. And Joe Torre is is so heralded as being that kind of guy, and it sounds like you are as well. I mean, and those extremes that you mentioned between Pettit and Cohn, for example, are they're funny, but they're true. You have your finger on the pulse. You have to, and you have to understand what buttons push what and how they affect them. So I enjoyed hearing that story. And you just got re-signed with the Yankees again on some sort of special services agreement, right? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, they're they're having me back now. Come back to the suites and come back to the you know do the corporate outings and things that they do that I've been doing in the past. And I've just been really really busy the last few years uh, trying to get the real estate and get the title work going. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm now back. Uh, hopefully doing doing the same things that I was doing uh, before uh, in the suites with the corporate sponsorships. That sounds great. I'm sure it must go over so well with, I mean, all fans, but, uh, you know, especially fans that are probably in their late 20s, early 30s and up. So, Well, exactly. I mean, it's, it's great to go in. Like I said, it's great to be able to go back in and you know, talk to these fans and, and they tell the stories. And, you know, like I said, things that you don't you didn't realize that, you know, that you, the impact that not just you, but the teams of those years had on these people and their families and their kids. And it's just it's just really neat to be a part of it. And I've missed it for the last year and a half, uh, almost two years that I, that I haven't been a part of it. And uh, I'm excited because number one, not only is it fun to do that, but it's going to be a great team to watch. Oh yeah. And, last you know, last year was one of the more fun Yankee teams you wanted to watch or had to watch day in, day out. It was, it, yeah. And I think 2020 is going to be that and more. Um, thank well, and I think again, the excitement of every fifth day with Garrett Cole taking a ball. There it is. Is, is going to be something new that we, that they didn't have last year, you know, and, and that will be an excitement in itself. If he gets off there, you know, just a decent start. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be something special to watch. I think this year. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully he picks up on the momentum from it was 20 and 20 and five with a 2.5 ERA last year. I think Yankees fans will sign up for that. So, how are you enjoying the balance of doing the motivational speaking and the, and the corporate speaking along with the real estate gig? You're going to be back in the New York area or just bouncing around? Yeah, I'll be spending probably, I would say, starting in February, anywhere from 11 to 12 days a month in New York. And then once the baseball season starts, uh, mostly being there for all the home games. Um but again, being there, you know, and, and again, I, like I mentioned before, my daughter is possibly being accepted in the Marist. Uh, if she's going to college up there, it'll be even more reason for me to, to hang around even after I'm done working. I have yeah. to spend some, some quality time with her, too. So I'm excited. You know, New York is going to be someplace that my wife and I have always talked about that it's going to be in our life forever. Uh, we love the city. We love the people of New York. Uh, we love the Yankees. And uh, you know, to have the best of, you know, I, I, I don't want to call myself a snowbird, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm going to I, I see my future as being you know, here in California in the winter times and then being in New York for the majority of the, the baseball season and uh, in, in doing some Yankee stuff, but then also uh, with the real estate and, and everything. And uh, yeah, it's going to be, you know, so it's exciting that, you know, I, I turn 56 tomorrow. Oh, wow. Um, yep. Tomorrow's my birthday. So I'll be 56. And, you know, it's exciting for me to, to have different uh, ways of reinventing myself uh, and, and have new challenges. 
that um, that keep me young and keep me going. And I think, uh, you know, I'm just fortunate to have a beautiful wife that doesn't mind the travel, doesn't mind, you know, she's here raising the girls. And uh, my three boys are here in California also. And it's just it's just nice to 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 have that support system to be able to go and and do these things and, and to uh, to be a part of New York still and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, though you've had some of the highest highs, and you've also been through some very tough moments in your life, which I appreciate you being so transparent about, and, and the stories are nothing short of inspirational, and uh, personally speaking, I think, you know, your story about what your dad has told you and, and how that faith has sort of manifested and stayed with you, it's clearly given you a really blessed life, and I think... Well, I would be remiss, I would be remiss to end this conversation with saying that I... I Part of my father's advice and then a, a book called The Purpose Driven Life by this pastor named Rick Warren, who's now my pastor here in California. Uh, I read that book in January of 2008 and in August of 2008, gave up my, gave my life to Christ because of that book and because of the influence. And it is part of the reason why, you know, like today I'm leaving this interview and I'm going to the church for three hours to work and serve. Uh, because of the impact that that book had on me to be able to give my life to Christ uh, and and have a God-centered life. And again, all of that culminating into the ups and downs that we face every day in our life, I'm able to handle and to keep in perspective because of my faith and because of what I believe in. So I'd be remiss if I didn't add that to this interview also. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad you did. And and it's not easy. And I think people out there that may be struggling, I think they need to hear that. And and I'm glad that athletes, past and present, are speaking out about that. And I think it's really important. But just to maybe end this on some levity, I agree with your wife. I'm glad you hit the home run in New York and not Seattle. <laughs> and, and it sounds like you have a lot of great balance in, in what's going on. Thrilled to have you on and really glad that you could join me, Jim. And thanks for all the stories. Well, I appreciate it, Benjamin. Thank you for having me, and good luck with everything you're doing. My thanks to Jim Leyritz, whose birthday is today, so a very happy birthday to him. And I hope you all enjoyed hearing his story, learning a little bit more about him, and maybe even drawing some inspiration from it all. So until next time, this has been Benjamin Block, and thanks for listening. <laughs>